Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. How you doing, Sadie? Having a good summer of Satan? Oh, yeah. This summer of Satan is bringing me endless joy. That's, it's going fantastic. Yeah, I, I would say it's going devilishly good. <laughs> yes, yeah. quite. My name is Gavriel Hakoen. I'm here with my BFF and co-host, Sadie Carpenter. Cult expert, cult survivor Sadie Carpenter is here as always. Today, uh, in our Summer of Satan series, where we talk about the satanic panic, we talk about um, satanic ritual abuse, myths, that sort of thing, we're going into a topic we covered in like one of the earliest episodes of the show, which is why rock and roll is considered so demonic. But we're also talking about a guy who we talked about a couple months ago who was doing these exorcisms his name is bob larson and he's kind of like in the venn diagram of the rock and roll is satanic and the i'm doing exorcisms spaces yes. of of fundamentalism do you want to talk about that sadie uh introduce yeah. to the topic so bob larson is not uh as deep into fundamentalism as somebody like Jack Chick or Peter Ruckman, who are completely affiliated with the IFB and with fundamentalism as a whole. Bob Larson is not. Bob Larson is, he floats between different evangelical camps because of the nature of his work and because he, that's what he wants. He wants to have a broader reach than just the IFB or just fundamentalism. He also didn't shape the satanic panic quite as much as someone like Jack Chick or even Mike Warnke, but he's not a minor player. Bob Larson had a very popular radio show in the 80s and 90s in which he took callers, answered questions about general satanic panic type stuff. He set himself up as an expert 
on Satanism and the occult and demons and all of that sort of thing, which eventually led to him performing exorcisms over the phone on his radio show and some unlikely friendships. Um, all of which we covered in, in our full episode about him. He's a very interesting character. Currently, he travels around mostly within the United States doing conferences where people can learn how to do exorcisms and selling his many, many, many books. He's also very well known for videoing the exorcisms that he does and posting them online. So anyone who knows about the Satanic Panic knows that rock music was a major battlefield of this entirely made-up war. Today we're reading the book Rock for Those Who Listen to the Words and Don't Like What They Hear by Bob Larson. Uh, this is a really good uh, source for picking apart the fundamentalist objections to rock music. So we know that fundamentalists define rock music as anything that isn't one of the following hymns, fundy songs, Jesus music with very little beat, early Broadway-style music, big band 40s and 50s music, and the very softest of soft jazz. We also know that the fundamentalist disdain of rock music is very heavily rooted in racism. And that goes all the way back to that episode that you were referencing, Gavi. I think it was episode number two. <laughs> the, yes. the curse of Ham doctrine. The basic idea is that Noah's son Ham was cursed after the flood and that he became the ancestor of all people who have African ancestry. This idea that Ham and all of his descendants are cursed has been used to justify slavery and dehumanize all Black people in general. But in modern times, it's also been interpreted to demonize all music with a two and four beat. The incredibly racist claim is that music with a two and four beat comes from African tribal music and it's used to summon spirits and worship Satan in Africa and the devil has caused this beat to infiltrate American music in order to lead people away from Jesus. But this book goes into a lot of the more minor objections that fundamentalists have to rock music. This book glosses over a lot of that racist history and goes into the laundry list of other things other reasons that fundies don't listen to what they consider to be rock music. It's actually a fairly complete list of all of those objections, so that's why we picked this book. It's a really good one to dig into what those objections actually are and the many, many ways that Bob Larson believes that rock music is tied to Satanism. I found this book to be a very interesting read. I read a version of it that that was uh, an edition from, I think, 1987. And Sadie read one that came out earlier, so our references are, are going to be slightly different, or the uh, the references that are in the book are going to be slightly different, or they'll, they'll phrase things slightly differently depending on what groups that they're talking about or what, what music is popular at the time. But for instance, Sadie's has... The one that she read had a whole chapter on disco, whereas yes. the one that I read, rather than having the chapter on disco, it had a chapter on heavy metal instead. And that's good because we get ex it's like extra Bob Larson bonus content. Yeah. But yeah, we, we read this book. Uh, we both read this book. It was about 200 pages. Yeah, yours is longer. Mine's 160. Okay. See, so yeah. Did yours have a glossary at the back? Yes. Mine had the original 1980 glossary, which includes such satanic groups as Elvis Presley and uh, the Bee Gees and the Beach Boys and ABBA. 
Yes. And then it has an updated 1982 glossary that talks about the rise of punk music. And mine has things like it, it'll have like Van Halen and um, I don't know, like Dio, Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne, th- that thing. Th- those will those will all be in the one that I read. So before we get into that, the leaving, I just got to say. The Leaving Eaton Podcast is a podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult or Christian fundamentalism, which is how she was raised. Uh, We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, there's some things that you can do to support us. You can... Number one, you can join our Patreon where we have extended and uncensored versions of our episodes that are also ad-free. I know that today's episode, because we're talking about uh, rock music, which is a topic that Sadie and I both find very fun to talk about, I know that we're going to go into like a lot of extra conversations that we're going to have to cut for the version that goes out on streaming because we don't like to, we know that you guys don't want to hear like a three hour podcast episode from us on the streaming cut at least, but there will be an ex- a very extended version of the episode on the um on the patreon so that'll be really fun you can also uh join our facebook group and our subreddit so the facebook group is facebook.com slash groups slash eden exodus the subreddit is reddit.com slash r slash eden exodus both of these are great places to have discussions with other fans of the podcast or um you know share your deconstruction memes if you want to or just your religion memes in that facebook group or on that subreddit those are both super fun i'm trying to think what else oh you can share our podcast with your friends your family your coworkers your father your son and your holy spirit <laughs> and i think without further ado i'm going to go and thank our patrons and then sadie's going to give us a bit of a tw and then we're just going to get into the content of this book so we have three I gave it all to your patrons, and they are Kathleen Moncrief, Melissa Mosley, and on behalf of his lovely uh, deconstructorino wife, Madeline Antrim, we have Todd Dale. Thank, Thank you, you guys so, so much. much to our I gave it all to your patrons. Yes, th- you guys are truly wonderful, and we are thankful for your support, and we are amazed by your support. We are also amazed by the support of our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons, and your names are Alex P., Alicia Guild, Ali Allen, Anisha Patel, Ashley Doxtater, Brooke Tolly, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen the Musical, Dora J., Eleanor Donahue, Enchanted Fairy, Esther M., Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Justin, Kat Henwood, Kay Turwee, Kitty Kate, Kristen Marie, Learned Vixen, Lita, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, Madeline Antrim, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Marsha Millard, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Reese, Stephanie Johnson, Steve and Amy, Susie, Tara McNamara, The Loch Ness, Tiffany Enderby, and as always, Wes the Cowboy. 
Thank you guys so much for supporting us at the Faith Promise Missions tier. And thank you to all of our patrons who are the ones that make it possible for us to devote the time that we need to devote to this show in order to bring you episodes every week. Thank you guys so much. Yes, thank you so much to everyone who supports us over on Patreon, as well as the people who support us through non-financial ways like keeping our Facebook group and our socials active, sharing us on social media, sharing us with friends, keeping the buzz going. Every Everybody is a part of making this show successful, and we really appreciate you. Yeah, every time somebody tags us on social media, um, we do see that. Sadie and I see that. So if you like tag us, like we, I, I get the notifications when somebody tags Leaving Eden podcast in like somebody's uh, Instagram reel about deconstruction or about something that they survived when they went through IBLP and 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 that. And really, we do we do see that. My TikTok mentions have been so frequent lately that I haven't been able to even, like, I can watch them all, but I can't sit and respond to all of them. It's been amazing. I mean, thank thank you guys so much for supporting the show in the way that you do. It, it really means a lot to us. And also, I just want to say one more time, because this is the first episode that we've recorded since we've finished recording our pride episodes. I just want to say another thank you to everyone who sent us pride stories. It really means so much that you guys send us your stories and that we get to read them. I feel really honored to get to read your stories on the air. Um, it's one of my favorite things that we do all year. And I just wanted to say thank you one more time for that. Sadie, do you want to hit us with the TW? Absolutely. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will mention at least a few of these topics, but we try to avoid graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story we're telling on that particular day. And we do our best to give the audience a heads up before we go into that kind of detail on any of those topics or anything else that we know can be triggering to others. This episode in particular is about the satanic panic. It is about rock music. So we're going to be hearing a lot of judgment towards these rock stars for things like their sexuality or quote unquote quote-unquote promiscuity, their substance use, their religious beliefs, their clothing choices. There's a lot of judgment portrayed in this episode, um, as well as general satanic panic type themes. We will be describing certain rock stars like Alice Cooper who have a little bit more of a gory show, but all of these things are the way that we're going to talk about them are a bit tongue-in-cheek, and we will let you know if anything that we know can be triggering is going to come up. Thank you for that. Sadie, do you want to start us off with maybe a quote from the book? (laughs) So I pulled this quote from the introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Bob Larson is telling a story about he had been invited to speak at this particular church. So one thing that he was doing in the early 80s was going church to church, doing seminars on rock music and explaining to all of these naive little Christian parents, um, how terrible the music of the time was and how they've got to protect their children from it. Uh, One family invited him over for lunch after the church service, and they enlisted their teenager to chauffeur Mr. and Mrs. Larson to their home. This is a quote from the story that he's telling about that. The teenager driving us to our Sunday luncheon engagement had turned the radio to his favorite rock station. It blared at full volume, the heaviest sounds he could find on the dial. Hell yeah. 
what uh, the heaviest sounds the airwaves were for the moment under the control of the rolling stones and rod stewart (laughs) (laughs) a of all rod stewart is still haunting me and showing up at random places in my life if you want my body and you think i'm sexy come on baby let me know is that the words I, yeah, think I think I got so. that right. I think so. That's I not get... my favorite rock broad story. I like Mandolin Wind better. I think that's a much better song. I get very, very respectfully hit on by an old guy in a Vegas casino one time. <laughs> and he <laughs> and then he turns out to be famous and haunts my life. <laughs> Wake up, Sadie. I think I got something to say to you. <laughs> At this point, it's been four and a half years. <laughs> three and a half years oh my goodness i just i see i see him everywhere i click on a random article on buzzfeed and then it's got a paragraph about rod stewart for no reason but number two this book was written in 1980 and i guess the heaviest sounds he could find on the dial were rod stewart this is this is years before bob larson went on tour with slayer which is a story that we've previously told yeah, I, I don't know. I think he's just like t- saying the heaviest sounds for like emphasis. Um, yeah, I just I feel like there might have been something heavier on the radio than Rod Stewart in the year 1980. But yeah, or, I mean, he could. I mean, if he just said Van Halen, which would have been on the radio in 1980, like that, that's not the heaviest sound that exists. But that's like, be like oh, OK, I get you. I see where you're going to. Yeah. I don't know. I, so after reading this book, one of the things that I, I had maybe a little bit of an insight. So a few weeks ago, we talked to Pastor Noah from Queer Eye, which was a fantastic conversation. I highly recommend you guys go back and check that out. Uh, we talked to Noah Hepler. Uh, he was in, on an episode of Queer Eye. He told us a story about that when he was in high school, he was discovered by church elders to be playing Dungeons and Dragons. And they sent him home with a book detailing how satanic Dungeons and Dragons was. Pastor Noah his teenage self, he came back to school after having read the book that they'd given him. And he was convinced that like none of the satanic conspiracies that they were telling him about Dungeons and Dragons were true because the people who had written the book didn't know the basic mechanics of how the game worked. And it was obvious that they were completely unfamiliar with it. And they were just like, oh, this has magic in it, satanic for sure. And like they didn't even bother to learn about it before they condemned it. This is a common theme within fundamentalist criticism of rock music. Literally anything that is rock or pop or hip hop, anything that those musicians decide to do is criticized by fundamentalists for being somehow demonic or satanic or evil or corrupting, but their complete lack of understanding of the music or the lyrics or the culture in in general, it kind of makes these criticisms fall into like eating crackers territory. You know what I'm saying? It makes like because it makes it yeah. difficult to yeah. I would like to contrast this with Bob Larson's criticisms of rock music. Bob Larson clearly understands this music. He's played this music and he's listened to this music and he's familiarized himself with this music. His criticisms come from a place of personal experience rather than prejudice and derangement. So whether or not you agree with them is a different conversation because I personally don't agree with most of his criticism, or at least I think that his criticisms of rock music are criticisms that you could have of society as a whole, or criticisms that you could have of a lot of things that aren't pop culture. And you could possibly have of even church culture as well. But 
his statements about the subject matter, like the factual basis for a lot of the stuff that he says in this book isn't completely baseless. Right. I do have maybe some issues with his sources that he quotes in that he 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 uses footnotes throughout this book to cite sources. I do maybe have some criticisms of his source materials that he uses to support what he's saying as absolute fact. And we will get into that. I have some pretty extensive fact checking of certain claims that he makes in this book. However, he is a person who was in bands, who was involved in music culture. He is not completely clueless. Some of the things that he says are very funny in the way that they are phrased, but you're correct. Um, the majority of his statements are not baseless. And there's a lot of rock like mythos that goes around, even with people who are fans of the genre like myself, that is also not, that's like an urban legend that got made up or that got a thing that happened, but that got like built up to be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and blown up rather than right. being a real thing. And that was really big during that time. And a lot of the things that he'll do will, he'll be, he'll cite some like urban legend about a band that will be a thing that legitimately fans of the band believe, but it won't have actually been true or it'll have been kind of true, but not really. Right. But he hears it and it sounds evil. So that's good enough for him to put it in his book. So I want to give an example from the second chapter of this book. Uh, so the first chapter is basically uh, Bob Larson making the point that the subject matter of rock of rock music is often sexually suggestive or in some cases downright pornographic. And as evidence for this is lyrics of like song titles, interview quotes from people like Motley Crue, Kiss, Blondie, Tina Turner, rest in peace, you know, Madonna, Ted Nugent, people like that. Mm -hmm. Sadie, you are. If I am correct, a fan of Kiss, you're a fan of Motley Crue. Would you describe their song lyrics as sexual? Yeah, um, I'm like cataloging songs in my head and trying to come up with one that isn't sexual. Yeah, like that's the appeal. I mean, Dr. Feelgood is really more about drugs. That's true. <laughs> I don't know if there's too much sex in that one. Yeah, but I mean, that's that's the thing is that like the if you don't want to hear songs about like his criticism, he's like, these songs are all about sex. And I'm like, yeah, they are all about sex. Yeah. The issue, the, the where I find issue with it is the value judgment that he puts on that. That's right. kind of the 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 common theme of this book is that he will say this is, song is bad because it's about sex, or this song is bad because it's about drugs or something. And I'm like, that. I mean, the song's about sex or the song's about drugs, but that doesn't make the song bad. Right. I think his point, which is not without value. Like if you are a parent and you believe that your child should never do any sort of drug or even like a mind altering substance like alcohol, and you believe that your child should not have sex until they are married to their one heterosexual life partner in Jesus forever, it doesn't it, it doesn't make sense for them to be listening to this music because this music is going to influence them to do the things that you don't want them to do. And that is not illogical. The issue is the idea that because you're a parent and because you're a Christian parent, you are presumed by this book to know better than your child does about everything. And as we've covered many times on this show, um, and especially with a lot of the 
stories that we've heard from people, especially people raising like IBLP, a lot of parents kind of suck. And a lot of parents are just are just don't have good judgment when it comes to this stuff. So the the thing about this book is is um that the way he writes things is extremely funny. So I have another quote from this chapter that just cracked me up. Go for it. You don't know the code language by which the more explicit lyrical images are conveyed. Terms like engine, motor, and machine are all sexual euphemisms. Hell yeah. Try this lexicon on for size. Funky refers to sexual odors. Gig <laughs> is a reference to sex orgies. Groovy is a description of the physical position of intercourse. Groupies <laughs> are, uh, y'all excuse me, outdated word for sex workers. Groupies are prostitutes who ply their wares in the company of rock stars. Get off signifies the goal of lovemaking. <laughs> so I think all of those terms are wrong. I'm pretty uh, sure. No, they're not all wrong. Because okay, groovy. You I've never okay, heard no. that before. Engine, motor, machine—that sort of thing being sexual euphemisms. That's correct. Yeah, I know. I listened to Van Halen. Yeah, and Early Kiss. Funky. I think. I think that's definitely wrong. Gig. I, I haven't heard gig. I didn't oh yeah, know and that. gig. No, gig means a show that your band is playing. Yeah, the thing is, the thing that I'm like, he's like, groupies are excuse the language prostitutes who ply their wares in the company of rockstar like that's definitely not correct no groupies were mostly like underage girls who got brought backstage and then were sexually abused by rock stars the issue like okay, yeah but but also like can sometimes consenting adult women that's true who chose to chase rock stars and it is absolutely both but like in the case of uh plaster caster which is going to come up later those women were adults and see consenting and when interviewed years after seemed pretty happy with their uh rock music plaster casting career yeah and in fact one of my biggest criticisms with this book is that bob larson will takes all of the time to come to come after rock stars for immoral actions with regards to sex but none of the immoral actions that he'll say that they were doing are the ones that I find to be the most immoral, which are the ones where it's like, oh, you were a famous musician in your 20s and you were messing around with girls who were 13, 14, 15 years old. Yeah, that's illegal and immoral and unethical. If you brought that up, I would be like, I'm right there with you, Bob. That is wrong. Right. Like to define groupies as sex workers is ignorant and also it writes over the actual abuses that you were bringing up of underage women and girls who were uh, who did suffer abuse in that kind of environment and it completely writes over the agency of adult consenting women who chose to follow bands around on tour yeah and it attempts to smear all of those people by calling them sex workers because he is just assuming that everybody shares his disdain of sex workers like it's yeah. there are layers of problematic here i just want to um point out that while it's not like he never says that there's the um 
the issue with rock musicians sexually abusing women who are younger than the age of consent. It's not that he never mentions it, but it's very much like an afterthought the way that he does. I want to move on real quick. Bob Larson goes on to talk about the Senate hearings and the PMRC, which was, what does the PMRC stand for, Sadie? Do you remember? Parents Music Resource Council, I believe. And he describes this, the, the, um, the PMRC and those hearings in a not inaccurate way. And he quotes people like Frank Zappa and Dee Snyder. And he doesn't super editorialize their arguments. He kind of does a, this is what they're saying in their own words thing. The thing is that the way that he describes these things are supposed to make people reading it like clutch pearls. It's supposed to be like, how, how, how could musicians say this sort of thing? Yeah, his his language when describing like when introducing a quote is clearly intended to generate an emotional response from the reader the thing is that when i'm reading these quotes it makes me think man frank zappa d snyder they sound cool as f you know what i'm saying like honestly it makes me personally wish that rock musicians today were as willing to like piss off the fundies as they were 40 years ago because like the, the number of musicians today who are really going out of their way to make thing to make music that is that is vulgar or envelope pushing in a way that people were back then it, it i mean it feels just like now things are just safe and it's kind of disappointing like how often do you hear a song come out and right wingers just totally lose their minds over it like do you remember when meg and cardi came out with wop of course now if you're coming i guess like now the, the only people that are doing that are people who are just like extremely and like aggressively pro-queer or if you're famous and like and like you're famous and you're telling people that you don't like that they can go kick rocks like yeah. i think that's cool and there are some people that are doing it but most of the mainstream artists that i'm seeing now aren't really doing that thing or they'll like talk the talk, but their music won't really subject matter wise or sonically wise really be envelope pushing as far as moving as, as far as like what Jack Black would say was the spirit of rock and roll was sticking it to the man. Yeah. Well, like their modern artists are often using the same kind of language or the same imagery that was shocking 40 years ago and expecting it to still be shocking. Um, I did. Larson just so seriously over-sensationalizes everything. There's a section where he's talking about the imagery of rock music, like album covers and posters and that kind of thing. And it's, oh, you know, this group had this on their album cover. It was terrible. He cites the album Act Like Nothing's Wrong by musician Al Cooper. He says, and trigger warning for an outdated term about trans people, not that bad. But he says um, the album features an image of a, quote, hermaphrodite. So I Googled mm. the album cover because I'm like, I don't know who Al Cooper is. And this sounds like, what is it that he's interpreting as being an image of this? And the album cover is literally just a nude man who is posed in a feminine way. Yeah. Like, it's very NBD. It's like, it's similar to a Prince album cover that had, that had come out later. It's just not that crazy and i looked up al cooper and didn't find any indication that he was anything other than a cis guy who liked playing with femininity and pushing the boundaries of album covers yeah and like i mean after he finishes 
talking about the PMRC and taking the side of the PMRC and sounding like a total boner, uh, <laughs> doing like, I mean, like if you're taking the side of the PMRC, you sound like a boner, like, come on, like chapter four, um, speaking of the Al Cooper part is the, um, is the, the rock music turns you gay chapter. Mm-hmm. And it's hilarious to me to read now because it's basically just like a list of every cool as gender bending thing that male rock stars have ever done like yeah that's about it yeah i'm i'm just like oh man it's it's i mean it's like a greatest hits list almost of like cool (laughs) gender bending stuff that rock musicians had done in the 70s and the 80s i don't know i i don't get why the fundies lose their goddamn minds when people when dudes play around with femininity femininity it's pure derangement so bob larson takes aim at this in this chapter at the usual suspects uh, like David Bowie, Mick Jagger, but he really goes after somebody you maybe wouldn't expect when talking about gender bending rock music. And that's Alice Cooper. So here's what he has to say about Alice Cooper is one of his favorite people to go for in this entire book. Of course he is. I just, I don't get it. Because he, well, this was part of the thing is Alice Cooper called himself Alice Cooper because he knew that being a man and using a name like Alice would be controversial and would be. And I get that it was a different time when that would have been a big deal. There are so many people that I associate with so much worse debauchery than Alice Cooper that it bends my brain a little bit well alice cooper the thing of he he had the thing with the chicken right yeah where and that was a pretty big deal all of the like it's the same with like ozzy and the bat right but as previously discussed ozzy and the bat was not purposeful part of the stage show yeah yeah so here i'll read his quote on alice cooper all the gay rock groups have a long have to go a long way to beat alice cooper Alice, who claims to be the reincarnation of a 17th century witch, began his rock career by coming out on stage dressed with mascara and in women's clothing. And Alice Cooper performance is a wedding of perversion and dramatized violence. Hell yeah. Sure. I mean, it it is one of the best stage shows in rock and roll I hear. I've never seen Alice Cooper, but... No, but like, that was the thing. It was was theatrical. It was very much just like... uh... I mean, it's like, you know how you go to a Beyonce show today and she has like the 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 marching band on yeah. stage with her. Yeah. Like, I get all that. What I don't get is why this is in the rock and roll makes you gay chapter, not the rock and roll is a cult chapter. It's just it's it's the Alice thing. It's literally just call yeah. yourself Alice. So Larson had a footnote sourced for his claim that Cooper claims to be in the reincarnation of a 17th century witch. The source was supposedly in Rolling Stone on December 19th, 1978, page 23. All eight footnotes for this chapter were Rolling Stone print articles from the late 70s or very, very early 80s. But for some reason, I thought I should look up this footnote. So I looked on an Alice Cooper fan site that collects every single article about Alice Cooper ever. And this article did not appear anywhere on that site. So I went to Rolling Stone and on their website, I was able to find every single magazine cover from the entire year 1978. 
And just looking at the end of the year, because this article was supposedly December 19th, November 2nd of 1978 was Gilda Radner. December 14th was Chi Jing Chong. Uh, and then December 28th, 1978 and January 11th, 1979 was a double issue. The cover story was Richard Dreyfus. No mention of Alice Cooper on the cover of any of those. Um, but that doesn't mean he wasn't mentioned in the magazine. What is a problem is that there was no December 19th, 1978 edition of Rolling Stone. So his sources are just bad. Hey, that source doesn't exist. I have fact-checked some of his sources later on that did exist, but his source for Alice Cooper claims that he is the reincarnation of a 17th century witch does not exist. He, he messed up his sources. Here's the thing. The idea that Alice Cooper got his name from a Ouija board that told him that he was the reincarnation of a 17th century, which is common fan lore. Um, it's a rumor that got started and Alice Cooper very much encouraged and fed this rumor for years and years. And he's very much played into this rumor that got started about him. But he's also given interviews that clarify that that's not how he got his band name. Uh, in real life, that it's just a fun, like, fan theory. What's important to me is that he didn't say it in Rolling Stone on December 19th, 1978, because nobody said anything in Rolling Stone on December 19th, 1978, because there was not an issue that came out on that day. Also, Alice Cooper is notably straight and also a Christian. So interesting that he turned up in the rock and roll makes you gay chapter. Yeah, but once you call yourself Alice automatically yeah. gay just yeah there we go um, if you're if you're like not a huge huge metal band person you but you are like the progressive christian third of our audience you might actually really enjoy watching alice cooper interviews he's just he's really adorable very interesting person also very clearly a smart person i think he, he's from detroit right oh i can't remember i thought he was from detroit um but like if you I know like a solid subset of our audience is into like progressive Christian stuff, if that's you, just look up some of his interviews. It's he's just he's fun. So chapter five of this book is all about drugs. And he's basically just saying rock stars do lots of drugs, but also like and he, I mean he I also feel like kinda Bob Larson can f off about saying that rock and roll is pushing drugs, especially in twenty twenty three, because rock and roll didn't cause the opioid epidemic. Yeah, so I I think rock and roll promotes promiscuity is a better argument than rock and roll promotes drugs. Or rock and roll promotes partying and having a good time. Sure, or drinking. Can, rock yeah. and roll promotes drinking. I think that is a better argument than rock and roll pushes drugs because a teenager might hear a rock song that makes premarital sex sound really cool and they might decide to go try to do that. I think a teenager who hears a song about drugs being really cool is a lot less likely to be like, oh, I guess that's it. Better go find some drugs. I, I think this is a, that's a worse argument. And this is kind of another issue that I have is that like the rock and roll pearl clutchers, if you will, will kind of view all drugs as the same. So there could be a musician who's like, yeah, I smoke weed all the time. It's fine. But all of the songs that I know that are by rock musicians, like all of the rock songs that are about heroin 
are all songs that are like heroin is cancer don't touch it you know what i'm saying like my or it's yeah. like my life is terrible and i do heroin to cope with how bad my life is or i'm addicted to heroin and now i like can't go a day without doing heroin and it's completely ruining my life and my relationships like that is wh when i listen to um i mean like you listen to rolling stone songs from like the exile on main street era or like the um the one with the, the sticky fingers era there are songs on that that keith richards or make that keith richards especially would have written about being on heroin and they're all songs like heroin is absolutely the worst like i'm hooked on this stuff and i can't stop or if you listen to like yeah. allison chain's dirt that's a great record but that's an album that's all about i do heroin and my life is terrible now that i do heroin <laughs> Right. It's it's not exactly promoting it. And and you know, no. I think a lot of a lot of Bob Larson's evidence for how much rock music promotes drug use is references to get high or getting high. And I have I take a couple issues with that. Um that's like he is equating that to using harder drugs when in reality many of those references may be about consuming cannabis which is generally much less generally much less of a problem for the people who choose to do so also many of those references can be enjoyed by a person who does not consume cannabis as a reference to a happy emotional feeling that they are experiencing and i think how the listener interprets that is maybe more important than what the songwriter was referencing in this particular instance like there are plenty of um you know i'm thinking of rocky mountain high by john denver um great song that's a song that you could like you could squint and maybe interpret it to be about smoking weed but you can also enjoy the song perfectly well if you are if you are interpreting that as that you feel happy when you're out in nature and it makes you feel good. It uplifts your spirits. So I don't think it matters if John Denver was making a drug reference in the song Rocky Mountain High, because people who assume that it is can enjoy the song and people who assume that it's not can enjoy the song. So many, many of the songs that Bob Larson references as being about drugs are it's because the word high was used. And I don't feel like that's quite the win that he thinks it is. And that's my reasoning why. So another thing about the drugs chapter is a lot there. We really get into the parent shaming in yes. this chapter. Oof. So he writes this entire hypothetical story about a couple and their daughter. And it's a, he's writing it to the parent. So it's like you find out that your teenage daughter is not home when she's supposed to be. And you get a knock on the door from the police and they've dragged her home because she has been caught driving under the influence of drugs. And um, I just wanted to read like what he writes next as an example of the fear mongering and parent shaming. All the plans and hopes for your daughter have been crushed. The rest of her life shall bear a stigma and maybe a jail record. Now her future is one big question mark. The family reputation has been tarnished. People will look at you with one thought in mind you've failed as a parent it just reminds me when i read things like that how much of 
the evangelical and and Christian culture around this stuff is based on reputation for piety rather Mm -hmm. than am I living a good life? Right. So the parents' reputation is a huge player in this chapter and throughout the book. There is also a heavy dose of slippery slope philosophy. You know, if your kid ever once tries anything, they're going to end up driving under the influence and and they're in big trouble and they're going to have a jail record. And I certainly don't condone driving under the influence of any substance, legal or illegal, uh, because I think it's unethical to put other people's safety at risk like that. But the the slippery slope idea is pretty clear here how he is well, you let you let your kids listen to rock music and now she's in trouble with the law and it's your fault. And she has a DUI and she'll never ever be marriageable to a nice Christian boy who whatever, and then she'll end up barefoot and pregnant like who was it that was that was uh barefoot and pregnant living in sin, pride story? Oh, that I remember, remember the, the story you're talking about. I can't place it with, with the, the underwear. person who wrote in. Yeah, it was with the with the underwear. Oh, that was M. Yeah, that was M. Um M, that was M who wrote that story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but like th- he goes on, he talks about all the rock stars who died from drug overdoses in a very callous way, as if they're not even like people. And as if there were like there weren't like tons of fans of of those people and also friends of those people who lost somebody that they deeply cared about like he'll talk about like Jimi hendrix and janice joplin and and jim morrison and he's like they died from drugs and he'll talk about john bonham and he'll talk about bond scott and all of these people who's like oh they died from alcohol and just like yes and he's talking about in in the quote that i read he's talking about the hypothetical daughter as if she's not a person all the plans and hopes for your daughter have been crushed the family reputation has been what about her plans and her hopes yeah it's it's not about how this has potentially thrown a monkey wrench in all of her plans it's not about how her life is going to be impacted by this it's about how the family reputation and the parents plans for their kids have been have been destroyed by this thing that i'm thinking about with this also is that like drugs are things that people do whether or not they listen to rock and roll or whether or not they're involved in rock culture or whether or not they were influenced to do it by rock music which i don't think that people usually are chapter six and seven are chapters that are about rock musicians taking influence from religious slash spiritual traditions that are not christianity so one of them was so chapter six is mostly rock musicians are influenced by eastern religions like hinduism or buddhism scare 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 like it's it's truly wild to me that bob larson has never thought about the idea that music doesn't that like music doesn't belong to christians okay but christians actually like some christians actually think that i mean because of the psalms other cultures and religions have music too no think think that through slowly because of the psalms famous christian author but was that the first oh yeah (laughs) yeah oh man (laughs) i mean what they they probably wouldn't like to know is how much of um american pop music folk music whatever comes from scotch irish music what a lot of that came from was in gaelic Mm -hmm. and i believe that a lot of them were extremely pagan 
mm-hmm. the originators of that music were extremely pagan before like so and where that music comes from is pagan traditions sure um is, i'm actually fact checking you while you speak please fact because check I'm pretty me on that sure... because if i'm wrong about that no i, don't I, I you're wrong. right you're correct about the what you said but there's this hymn called come thou fount of every blessing which is um which is a, a hymn that i love which is very unfortunate because it's also jeremy and ginger's favorite uh the tune is nettleton i mean bethany beale has hallelujah by leonard cohen but covered by pentatonics on her oh christmas playlist so I, I believe that nettleton is a is an old Celtic tune, and also the tune to "Be Thou My Vision" may be. So even the music, like the the tunes that some incredibly popular Christian hymns are sung to, are of Celtic origin or Scotch Irish origin um, through Appalachia to the uh, <laughs> sort of the Lord Blueback hymnal. Yep. Yeah. So. And- we, if we want to get out all those non-Christian influences, we're going to have to pull an Elizabeth Elliot and take scissors to our hymnals. Yeah. I mean, that, but like, you know, he's talking about like George Harrison, the Beatles going to India and George Harrison really like taking a massive amount of Indian influence into the, the pop music thing in the 1960s. Like, I mean, the Beatles would have songs that sound that were like based heavily on Indian ragas, which I sure. thought I personally think is really cool. I mean, it's kind of like how in the 90s and like the the 1980s and the 1990s, the um, like Afrobeat music really came in and was really popular. Well, what Bob Larson's like his major concern with this is that if your child listens to music by such a quote, occult Eastern influences, um, they're going to end up in a cult and you are going to have to kid they're going to be proselytizing for the cult on the street and you as the parent are going to have to kidnap and de-brainwash deprogram your child and this happened to someone named Lori who it is it is not clear whether he is presenting her as a hypothetical fictional character or as a real character uh, but Lori was listening to the moody blues and <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's just the uh, most an like, album by the group yes called tales from topographic oceans great album um i don't know this one the straub's grave new world do you know this one no i don't know that one england dan john ford coley shiva's headband um Dreamweaver, the song Dreamweaver, Dream and the beach boys Weaver. oh i do know that one and the Beach Boys, of course, who I'm quite familiar with, because I was allowed to listen to the Beach Boys in Fundyland, but apparently the Fundies were wrong because the Beach Boys are heavily tied up in transcendental meditation. Well, East Coast girls are rich. I really dig the styles they wear. And the Northern... <laughs> anyway, if your, kid, if your kid listens to that, you are going to have to kidnap them off a street corner and deprogram them. Yeah, just like black bag them and throw them in a van. Um, that sounds that is literally what is described in this book. That's a sane thing to do to your child. No, chapter seven is all about like the occult influence, though, like the influence of like Aleister Crowley. 
And so he'll have the usual stuff. Like, you know, the, the Jimmy Page was really interested in the occult. We know this. Ozzy Osbourne was really interested in the occult. Ozzy Osbourne what? has a song. Ozzy Osbourne is Ozzy into the Osbourne. occult? Mr. Crowley. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, mean, I had no the guy idea. That made that song. But also, like, he's got a song or, or he's got, like, Stevie Wonder in here. Of all people, Stevie Wonder is out here catching strays from Bob Larson because Stevie Wonder wanted to release his album Songs in the Key of Life in his birth month, which is because of astrology, which is because of occult. I, I will hear no slander against Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. That is an incredible album. That is one of the best albums ever made. And Bob Larson having problems with Songs in the Key of Life is like highly sus do you remember in the satan cellar there was a whole list of things that were supposedly satanic yes and, and we like we had a lot of fun with that list this chapter is like connect the dots between any musician and anything on that list um definitely calls out the eagles a ton the eagles yeah jefferson starship Joni mitchell richie blackmore Fleetwood Mac, like the stuff that you, you kind of expect. I did a fact check on the Stevie Wonder thing because the, his entire problem with Stevie Wonder is he wanted his album to come out to coincide with his astrological sign, Taurus. Taurus gang, let's go. That makes sense. <laughs> so I looked this up. His source for this in the footnotes is People Magazine, July 19th, 1976. And there was a People Magazine issue published on July 19th, 1976. So he is doing way better than he did with the Alice Cooper thing. <laughs> Good job. That article exists. Good start. I was not able to find a copy of that article, but I did find out that Stevie Wonder was on the cover of People Magazine in October of 1976. This is a lot closer than I got looking for the Alice Cooper article. I was not able to find another source for Stevie Wonder delaying the album release of Songs in the Key of Life to come out during his birth month, though. I read a couple articles about that album, and all of those articles were basically like he wanted it to be perfect, and he worked and worked on it, and he kept delaying the release because it just wasn't quite there yet. And this was something, it wasn't just this record this is something that stevie wonder did more than once throughout his life was have severely delayed album releases and then when it came out it was fantastic songs in the key of life is legitimately like one of the best albums ever made by anybody ever it's so good so i just i wasn't able to find any external source for him purposely delaying to come out during his birth month what I did find is that he was a Taurus and he named his production company Taurus Productions. On the other hand of this, I want to, because uh, uh, we were talking about songs in the key of life. I remembered one of the songs that's off of it. I want to read some lyrics from this song. Oh, yeah, let's do that. This is this is for everybody who says Stevie Wonder, clearly uh, demonic and occult influenced. Here's some lyrics from a song. It says, many of us feel we walk alone without a friend, never communicating with the one who lives within, forgetting all about the one who never, ever lets you down. You can talk to him anytime. He's always around. When you feel your life's too hard, just go have a talk with God. That's a Stevie Wonder lyric mm. from the album 
that came out in May of 1976, Songs in the Key of Life. That's a that's a very nice lyric. It's a great song. Highly recommend. If you have not listened to this album, I don't know why you wouldn't have listened to. Uh, or I, I know a lot of people haven't listened to, uh, you know, music albums all the way. And th- it is a double album, but it is a perfect double album. It is truly like a masterpiece. Um, Side note: While you were reading those lyrics, I googled it, and Bob Larson is a Gemini. Oh, which is personally offensive to me because I love Gemini's. Your husband's a Gemini. Yeah, right? and so was my dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, uh, do you want to do the next chapter? Because this is the one that's possibly the funniest. Is this the heavy metal chapter? Okay, for you, it's heavy metal. For me, it's about disco. <laughs> okay, inter- Okay, tell me, what does he say in, uh, about disco? Well, disco is bad for multiple reasons. Um, disco sucks, dude. <laughs> reason number one is that they use drum machines and they don't even use a real human drummer. And okay. this is bad. Um, so I have some quotes. Um, Bob Larson's not a fan of the of the 808s. He's not a fan of the of the Roland drum machine. The no. uh, um, little trigger warning for uh, some homophobia in these quotes. Um, the first one: Disco is a body trip, not a head trip. And shaking's shaking one's quote booty is what it's all about. Yeah, Casey and the Sunshine Band. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bob Larson wrote booty in a book. Shake, shake, shake. Oh, shake, shake, shake. Shake okay, your the, booty. Shake well, a more serious booty. one. When Gobby's done. Um, <laughs> in homosexual haunts, dancing and drugs merged into a pharmaceutical fashion show of glitter and decadence. Today, one rock promoter estimates that 75% of all discos are gay operated. I wish. Undisputedly. Almost all disco DJs and lighting crews are gay, and homosexual patronage is considered a must by the businessman who opens a new club. I mean, like disco, like early days disco, very like very gay music genre. We have to honor and we have to respect the origins of the music that we listen to. And then disco music evolved into house music, also very gay music genre, very queer music genre. The the pioneers of these genres, queer people respect loving queer people you know yeah this is once again just boring boring homophobia like it's associated with gay people therefore it's bad i say it's associated with gay people therefore it's cool probably better (laughs) (laughs) larson goes on to say most parents haven't been to a disco so quote to spare you the trauma of searching out your local disco, let's take a vicarious journey inside those walls and see what goes on. Vicarious journey? Wait, so is he like... Apparently he's telling people that he went to a disco to do the research so that he could tell them what it's like. Did somebody offer him poppers in the bathroom? I think so. <laughs> let me read you the next. Let me read you the next quote here. Inside, you encounter a fantasy world of mirrored walls, see-through clothing, twirling glass balls, twirling glass balls, strobe lights, and lasers, as well as a pharmacopoeia of drugs. Poppers, parentheses, amyl and butyl nitrite, in parentheses. Ethyl chloride, quaaludes, and psychedelics fill the heads of the dancers dressed in lycra jeans and thigh-high split dresses. Periodically, the audience is showered in a blizzard of white polyurethane, fake snow, to remind customers that cocaine is their favorite drug because of the seemingly boundless energy it produces. Honestly, that sounds like a great time. 
Uh, so much to unpack here. Okay. His writing, he, he is a really good writer. Dancing and drugs merged into a pharmaceutical fashion show of glitter and decadence. That's a nicely put together sentence. You know, if he had written his own novel, that would have been great. But he didn't write his novel. He made somebody else write it for him and then did not give her credit. Um, also, though, to remind customers that cocaine is their favorite drug, I feel like people who would say that cocaine is their favorite drug don't generally need to be reminded. That's That was a weird phrase. He goes on to criticize disco for being a center of gay advocacy because of the village people. So again, it's bad because it's associated with gay people. And then he asks, and this is wild, who was the first dancer? It may have been Satan. It wasn't uh, David jumping for joy in front of the Lord. Well, Satan predates David. That's true. So first, and, and that's like the whole funny thing of like the first mention of anything is significant and also weirdly connecting dancing to satan he then finishes it off with some pseudoscience psychobabble about over overstimulated quote neurosensory responses what this whole chapter is is just an, a different level of wild but i want to hear what the updated version says about heavy metal i want to read this passage for you um okay any real metal heads are going to laugh their asses off from it so it says, among the most popular heavy metal bands are AC Lightning Bolt DC. <laughs> no, he says ACDC, Iron Maiden, Dio, Scorpions, Judas Priest, Rat, Ozzy Osbourne, Motley Crue, Quiet Riot, Deep Purple, Twisted Sister, Armored Saint, Metallica, Dokken, Grim Reaper, Queensryche, Keel, Wasp, Raven, Black Sabbath, Van Halen, Aerosmith, Accept, Loudness, Crocus, Blue Oyster Cult, Def Leppard, and Triumph. I mean, he like a lot of those bands, yeah, you know, real heavy metal bands. But like ACDC, not really heavy metal. Motley Crue, Van Halen, Aeros, those guys, those aren't really metal at all. There's no like Megadeth. There's no Slayer. There's no Anthrax. There's no Motorhead. I mean, like, because I know Bob Larson knows better than this. Bob Larson knows heavy metal. I think he just made a list of bands that are popular and bands that he thinks have uh, scary sounding names because people reading this book won't have actually listened to any of it and they won't be able to tell the difference between like regular rock music and like heavy metal. There are some notable misses on this list. Like a lot of these bands are metal like i would call um you know motley motley crew is glam metal so that definitely counts like bands like um, yeah they're like hair metal right they're hair metal and that's that's fine uh so okay iron maiden dio scorpions priest ozzy motley quiet right twisted sister like quiet right is also hair metal um metallica doc and queens right like wasp is kind of hair metal sabbath def, Le def leopard sure like half of them are heavy metal and then like Aerosmith, Blue Oyster Cult. Aerosmith is not metal. Aerosmith is just like a Van rock Halen. band. They're like those are hard rock bands. Yeah. For sure. Um, Blue Oyster Cult. That's not a. I don't know. I like, also, I also feel like there are some misses that like need to be on this list. Like it's weird to mention writing in the 80s it feels weird to me to mention van halen aerosmith blue oyster cult def leppard and not mention white snake yeah 
like that feels odd it feels weird to mention wasp rat quiet riot and motley without mentioning poison yeah like that's weird like why would you leave out poison in this list yeah and also like the the version of the book that the, the version of the book i'm reading is from like 87 because it's got the yeah. pmrc thing in it which is from 85 so it would have been updated to include these things it's got metallica in it metallica wasn't yeah popular until like later but your version the, is from 1987 yeah and it doesn't have like slayer is not in it no like you said slayer anthrax motorhead he toured like, with slayer yeah but your copy he toured with slayer in 1989 so that was still after your copy was printed I don't know. I like, I, I think it's interesting because the version I'm reading was published in 87 and it's funny because to me, it is so dated to the like late eighties hair metal. And I think that the thing that Larson says about hair metal is that he's like, this is music that's devoid of death. And it's just like very hedonistic and not really very substantive, which if we're talking about like hair metal from the late eighties, I kind of agree with him, you know, sure. Like rat, and Poison and like Van Hagar had some hits in the late 80s, but like by 1987, the kind of the the heavy metal, like hair metal scene was so generic and creatively bankrupt that I don't find myself revisiting it for anything other than just like a surface level good, like feel good vibes. If I'm on like a road trip or if I'm at like a barbecue or something, then sure, I'll put on the hair metal. But like, I, it's it's not really like an in-depth listen. I would much prefer to read a version of this book published in like 1993 after Nirvana's Nevermind and like grunge essentially killed hair metal. So yeah, I would love to hear what he had to say about 90s music, uh, especially grunge. But speaking of this chapter, though, Bob Larson um, and, and the emptiness of heavy metal. Bob Larson oh writes about... Um, <laughs> the movie this is spinal tap <laughs> oh man he has like a does whole... he know that it's satire yes he knows that oh, it's okay like so our listeners uh if you are not familiar I, I assume most of our listeners are familiar with this movie but it's a mockumentary about a fictional rock band called spinal tap that's going on tour in 1985 it's a very funny movie and it basically just lampoons uh rock music rock bands the whole scene in in a in a really enjoyable way bob larson has some insight into this film that i don't necessarily disagree with and that like a lot of famous rock musicians don't necessarily disagree with either although he makes things out to be a little bit different than they actually are like larson claims that while adults are watching the movie and they're understanding that it's satire that children watching the movie might think that the movie is real and that spinal tap is a real band and that this is a real documentary which i think just goes to the funniness of the movie of like the fact that it's a good movie he he claims that this that heavy metal and rock band culture in 1985 was so absurd that this movie could be real which of course is one of the gimmicks of the movie which which makes the movie work so well it, and one of the points that he brings up as evidence to this is that it did in fact convince some people into thinking that the band spinal tap was a real band and they went to the record store and being like hey do you have the spinal tap record i want to listen to it and they're like no spinal tap's not a real band it's it's from a movie the thing is many famous musicians from that era publicly said that spinal tap was great satire because it hits so close to home like the film got positive reviews from legendary rock stars like jimmy page robert plant from led zeppelin 
Glenn Danzig from The Misfits, Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl from Nirvana said it was a great movie, Lars Ulrich and James Hetfield from Metallica, Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister, Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains, and the Prince of Darkness himself, Ozzy Osbourne, all had positive things to say about the movie. However, just because the film depicted something that was somewhat close to reality doesn't mean that everybody found it funny. Like Aerosmith's lead singer, Steven Tyler, apparently didn't find it funny because it was too close to home and he felt that like is like hey that's a little bit below the belt because they came out with an album that was like had stonehenge on the cover right around the time that spinal tap came out and they thought they were being like specifically targeted for it but did they get stuck in a chrysalis on stage i don't know like i mean that's a thing that could happen though that's like like that's, the my, rock fa- and- that's my favorite scene in the movie <laughs> I'm trying to think what my favorite scene. My favorite scene in the movie was when they're they have the album title uh, "Smell the Glove," which is, um, but it turns out to like, but the record cover gets banned because it's too like explicit and exploitative, and they're just like, okay, we'll just do like a black album cover, and they're just like, it's black, it's you can't get any more black than just black. black. It was very funny. But the guitarist from U2, uh, The Edge, he goes by The Edge, he said that his reaction to seeing the film upon its release in 1984 was, uh, he said this, he said, I didn't laugh, I wept, because it summed up what a brainless swamp big label rock music had become. So you feel like Bob Larson's uh, take on Spinal Tap is pretty good. Yeah, Bob Larson's take on Spinal Tap is basically like, this movie is ridiculous, but it could be real. And that's what makes it good satire. But that's also like one of the things that I think makes it so like rock music in 1985, at least like the hair metal scene by that point was, I mean, it was still there, but it was kind of like creatively dead. It's sort of like a lot of like the same parallels to, I see what was, what was going on in like trap music in like 2018, 2019, when everything, every song had like trap beats on it but it was just like creatively a lot of the music was just not there and just not very good or just like lyrically just so surface level that there wasn't a lot really going on with it. At least a lot of the mainstream stuff, there was a lot of uh, mainstream artists that were making good trap music at that time. But like, I definitely see a parallel there or like the post grunge thing in like probably 2000, 2001, same sort of thing. Like, I mean, it's the same thing where prog rock got, so self-indulgent that punk had to come along and then punk got so like we're kicking everybody out who doesn't look like us and doesn't share our aesthetic that like post-punk new wave that had to come along like it's it's all cyclical and it seems like bob larson is like making a good point but then everything that he builds on that foundation is just silly like yeah i mean we know that hair metal is not like great music it's like fun to listen to but it's not like songs in the key of life by stevie wonder but that's also evil because astrology yeah because astrology i want to back up to one other thing that you said about spinal tap bob larson says i don't have access to this chapter so i'm just working off your notes but bob larson says that adults watching spinal tap would get that it's a satire but children might think that it's real yes in what world are children watching spinal tap that movie that is not an appropriate movie for children i watched that movie when i was probably like 13 and that's borderline but you think children children like 
children children i don't know i mean this was also like when did they come out with like movie ratings where everything was like before before a certain time everything was either like pg or it was r and if it was r it was just like there was like hella nudity and it was like it was the 80s i don't think was pg-13 invented i don't think pg-1984 oh okay so that would have been so it would have been before spinal tap let's see what was spinal tap rated and a lot of movies were just unrated that came out at that time yeah it spinal tap is rated r yeah so why is like a, i mean i watched that when why I was is 13. he concerned about children seeing it i know like if you're not letting your kids watch r-rated movies to begin with then like and because you're a fundy and your kids aren't watching r-rated movies to begin with like why what what is this even going Hang i don't on. know i'm gonna look up one more thing okay and the vhs did come out in 1984 so it is yeah. possible that he's concerned about kids seeing it on VHS at like other kids' houses. But I it I find it hard to imagine a world where most parents think it's a good idea to pop in a VHS of Spinal Tap for their eight-year-old. Right. I mean, the point he's trying to make here is rock culture is so crazy and clearly uh, hedonistic and demonic and bad that they made a movie that was a satire of it, but the satire could have been real. That was basically the, his argument here, which is not really like a, there are workplace comedies about like being a police officer. There's workplace comedies about being a teacher. There's workplace comedies about, I don't know, like every kind of thing that there is, you know, and then there's mockumentaries yeah. about everything. Like, what are we, what are we doing here? You know, I mean, if we're looking back to something that might be more Bob Larson speed, you could even reference the TV series Gomer Pyle USMC, which is a satirical comedy about the military. I don't know, man. I, th this, this just like this criticism here does not make a lot of sense to me. Let's, uh, this, this has been wild and fun so far. Why don't we go take up the offering? And when we come back, what, it, what is the next thing on our list? Next thing we're talking about MTV video killed the radio star here we go mtv then the, when we come back we have a couple chapters that you have access to and i don't um and i'm so excited to hear what bob larson had to say well let's go take up the offering hey it's paige Desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey. 
Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. We are talking about rock music and how obviously satanic it is, according to the one and only Bob Larson. Satanic expert, movie expert, music expert, Bob Larson. Yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Have you been convinced by Bob Larson yet of the uh, satanic and evil nature of rock music, Sadie? Not quite. Um, I do have some, I have some thoughts, but I'm going to save them until we get into the really parenting heavy chapters. The end of this book, the, the first part of the way this book is set up is like the first, like probably three quarters of it is like him saying rock music, this rock music, that it's bad because X it's bad because Y like here are all the reasons to be scared of this or worried about this. Yeah. Yeah. Like for example, the next chapter that we're going to talk about is chapter nine, which is all about MTV and Larson's main claim is like music videos are often sexualized. Well, you know, duh. Like what are we, what are we doing here? And then he's like saying a good music video producer or director can be seen in the same light as like a Hollywood producer or director. And he points out that videos are often like massive undertakings with the same level of production as like a feature film. And he's like, the perfect example of this is Michael Jackson's thriller. And I'm like, okay, like, how is that bad? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's um like, I don't know. I don't have access to this chapter because it wasn't in my older copy of the book, but I think music videos are new to the parents that he is writing to in this book. So they're naturally already afraid of them. And he is just giving them more reasons to be worried. Yeah. He's like, if you turn on MTV, you might see scantily clad women, which is true, but you might also see David Byrne in like a suit that's way too big acting kind of goofy on camera as well that's another thing you might see you might see michael jackson pretending to be a zombie like there's all different kinds of music videos but it seems like he just focuses on the most scandalous or the most like and that's just kind of the pattern it's one of those things you see what you're looking for like a rorschach when test. everything yeah when you're a hammer everything looks like a nail he knows his audience these parents want to be horribly scandalized by this book they want that visceral satisfaction of see i knew that my kids music was more than just annoying and he's giving the people what they want the second um after this chapter though is where he really actually gets into talking about like the the parenting aspects of like what to do if your kid is interested in rock music and this is where i think the book gets much more interesting because in the first half he's just kind of pointing stuff out but i and there is i think um a much different vibe that Bob Larson has around rock music than we've talked about before. Like then I think Sadie was raised in, in the IFB because correct me if I'm wrong, Sadie, when you were in growing up, you believed that if you heard certain kinds of music, then it introduced the possibility of a demon infecting you or something. 
Yeah. And if, you know, hearing it in the grocery store was not as dangerous as listening to it in your car, which is not as dangerous as listening in your room and dancing to the music. And going to a concert of it would be like the most dangerous of all. Or going, well, right, because that's where the demons are um, originating from. But the even just hearing it incidentally could potentially lead to demon oppression or demon possession because there are demons phys- demons attached to physical and digital copies of different types of music. Bob Larson, on the other hand, part of his argument in the parenting aspect of this book is that it is kind of based on this being wrong. So he's suggesting that in order for you to understand this music and in order for you to understand why it's wrong, you have to actually listen to it yourself, which is not a take that I often hear with fundamentalists. Yeah, that's a little bit on the unusual side. So we're going to get into that a little bit later, I think, um, because there's a chapter where he talks about that specifically. But in chapter 10, um, Bob Larson basically is he he kind of pivots from saying this is why it's bad to being like this is what you do and this is how you argue against this kind of music so he's talking about the problem of this music is everywhere and everyone's listening to it to parents he's basically saying tell your kids that what they should strive to be is different from everybody else and if everybody is is doing something that doesn't mean that they should do it which on its surface is a good argument not necessarily for this cause but is a good sentiment the thing that it kind of rhymes with is like the uh, christian should be a peculiar kind of people sentiment but here's the thing about it that kind of bothers me is that whenever people and this isn't just limited to christians you know getting butt hurt about the things that they like not being popular but people in general whenever you whenever people say you shouldn't like what everybody else likes very often there's an unspoken follow-up of you should like what I like instead because it's better. So Bob Larson and the parents reading this book, it seems like they aren't mad that everybody likes the same thing because of course not everybody likes the same thing, but they're mad that the thing that everybody likes isn't the thing that they want them to like. And for me, I kind of get this because when I was a kid, a lot of the music that was very popular at the time wasn't music that I really liked much at all. I was never like an emo kid. So like when My Chemical Romance and Fall Out Boy and Panic at the Disco, that was really popular. I didn't like that at all. And that felt socially isolating and somewhat alienating. The music that I was listening to a lot of time like during that time was a lot of the music that i'd grown up with which was the music that my parents were listening to which was good music but it wasn't cool to be 13 and listening to your parents music because like i remember thinking like why can't everybody think that fallout boy sucks and that black sabbath is the best so when bob larson is saying you need to go against the grain what he's really saying is you need to get everyone to stop listening to van halen and start listening to pat boone but i mean different people like different kinds of music for different reasons so i i do think that this take while on the surface i mean you know go against the grain if you want to but go against the grain in your own way don't do something just to be contrarian i think yeah just listen to our how to find music episode and like what you like that's true i definitely agree with that like like what you like bob larson also talks about how to deal with your righteous anger when your kids are listening to this music, but he's also kind of 
oblivious or he just doesn't address the fact that so much of the music that he's writing against and lampooning against in this or lambasting against excuse me not lampooning lambasting against in this book is music that is inspired by righteous anger at the way that certain kinds of people are treated by the hierarchy uh, that he is in fact writing this book in order to prop up yeah i wonder if bob larson wasn't just five years too old Hmm. do you think if he had been born five years later he was born in 1944 if he had been born five years later or 10 years later, do you think his opinions would have been different? Maybe because he grew up right. So he was born in 44. So he would have been like a young man in the late sixties when a lot of this stuff was getting popular, but like the really heavy stuff and like the heavy metal and like the much more occulty stuff didn't come in until he was getting into his late twenties and into his thirties. Right. And he was in bands in college. But if he was born in 1944, a college age for him is what, 1962 to 1966, roughly? Yeah. I, I just wonder if he had been in a band in 1967 or 1972 instead of in 1962, how would he have, how would his opinions have been different about what kind of music is good music? <laughs> And if you listen to like the pop music from like 1966 and what you're playing in a band in 1966 versus what you're playing in a band in 1970, like, I mean, in 66, you yeah. could be playing something that sounds like, um, I don't like that still sounds kind of early sixties ish, or you could be playing something that still sounds a little doo-woppy at that time. Yeah. Maybe. My father-in-law was in a band around the same time that Bob Larson was in this band. And they were a Shadows cover band, I think, or similar in style to like the Shadows, the Ventures, that style, like really early surf music. Yeah. And you could get, and that was something that was still kind of popular around that time, but you couldn't get in, like if you were doing that in 1970, I mean, the Beach Boys managed to like transition into getting more psychedelic and more experimental later but a lot of those early surf bands didn't so mm -hmm. it's entirely possible that a lot of this just might have been the music changing and the culture changing and bob larson not really knowing what being with it was anymore and being resentful of that <laughs> then they changed what it was yeah just like grandpa simpson yeah. but i think that's a, a really salient point that you just made there sadie that makes a lot of sense to me and i didn't even think of that there were a couple other things in the corresponding chapter in my version of this book that i wanted to point out he talks about peer pressure and he mentions that it's going to be difficult and isolating for teenagers to not consume the same pop culture that everybody else does the thing is that in fundamentalist thinking that difficulty is portrayed as a good thing this is presented as your kid will morally grow from having the experience of not being able to relate to their peers and their peers pop culture references. It'll make them tough. It'll make them strong in the Lord. But I've talked before about my own experience with that exact thing, not having any pop culture references, not being able to connect with people of my age group and how that was difficult for me. I don't think it has the intended effect. I don't think forcing your kid to be out of step with their generation has the outcome that 
you think it's going to have. I would feel like I was parent shaming if I came on with the opinion of, well, you just got to let your kid consume whatever media is out there. Like if your 14 year old feels like they have to watch Euphoria to fit in at school, guess you better hand them the remote and leave the room because that's I don't think that's the answer for everybody either. And clearly I'm not at this point yet in my parenting journey. My kid is two and a half. The only <laughs> the only issue I have right now is that she wants to sing the Little Green Frog song one million times a day or whatever song it is that she's stuck on this oh, week. So cute. <laughs> but I, you know, thinking forward to how do I plan to deal with this and things that I've been reading to prepare for that stage of parenting that is coming, regardless of what I do now. I think maybe there's a better way than raising kids that are completely out of touch with the content that's shaping their generation. And I think maybe there's a better way than just letting a kid have unfettered access to all sorts of media. One of the best supported points that Bob Larson has managed to make in this entire book is that cut and dried, Christian parents may feel justified in restricting their children from certain media. And you are, you and I, you or I can agree that Christian parents should be able to restrict their children from certain sorts of media, or we could disagree and say they shouldn't be able to. But our agreement or disagreement isn't going to change what Christian parents do because it's what Christian parents and other religious parents and other non-religious strict parents have been doing for literal generations. So is there something that is not cutting off all of a kid's media choices and also not just letting them see whatever. Because I don't think it's invalid. You know, if a parent thinks something is morally objectionable to not just give their kid free reign to watch whatever media they want with that in it. I am not against restricting certain media until a kid is a certain age or a certain maturity level. So let's think about this hypothetical 14-year-old who feels like they need to see Euphoria or like Game of Thrones to fit in at school. And you as their hypothetical parent just don't feel like that's appropriate content for a 14-year-old to be watching on their own. What can you do? Is there an option that isn't completely restricting it or completely allowing it. And I want to encourage people to think outside the box. I don't have this experience as a parent, but I do have this expertise from having been a kid whose media consumption was severely limited. I think good parents are resilient and creative and in touch with their kids' maturity level. And I think good parents who want to find a better way can find something better for their family that's between those two extremes. Maybe in this case of the hypothetical 14-year-old, a parent would pre-screen euphoria and decide, oh no, there's no way my kid is mature enough for this. I am not letting them watch it. And then the parent would write a plot summary of what happened in the show and read it with their kid and explain to them why they don't feel like their kid needs to be seeing these things on TV right now. Maybe another 14-year-old who wants to watch Euphoria, their parent feels differently and would watch it with them and pause when difficult things come up and have a conversation about it. I, I think that, like I said, good parents are resilient and creative and care, and they're in touch with their kid's maturity level. And I 
I think there are out-of-the-box solutions that can work. Bob Larson, like fundamentalists so often do, is setting up a false binary. You either let them run wild or you take restrict their media completely. Just like Debbie and Michael Pearl do, you either abuse your children through our methods or you will be completely overrun by your children. It's the same type of false binary here. And I think that we can do better than that. Yeah, um, I thought that's that's a really smart point. And also, I want to remember that because there's a point later in the book where Bob Larson talks about something that I think is related to that. But yeah, I, you have a quote okay. that you want to read next, right? Yeah. This is the other thing that I noticed from this chapter. This is a quote. Now that you know what those songs and singers are really all about, you're probably horrified to think that after all you've done to properly train your children, they may still violate the principles you hope to instill. Parent, take the knife away from your throat. You haven't failed. You have just underestimated the power of today's culture to induce conformity. Hmm. This one caught my attention because remember back in chapter five in the hypothetical story about the reader's daughter doing drugs, Larson uses everyone will think you failed as a parent as a threat to beat parents over the head with. He scaremongers at, at people with you failed, you failed. And then five chapters later, he comes back and say, it's okay, you haven't failed. That struck me as extremely culty and emotionally manipulative. I think it's interesting that he put that story in the beginning of the book and this one in like the middle of the book. Like if you put that mm -hmm. in the beginning of the book, you're going to read it and be like, oh, f I really need to keep reading this book and do what he says. And then you get to the middle and you're just like, okay, well, maybe there's some room for nuance here. Mm -hmm. That's kind of- I think that's a manipulative choice. Yeah. So the next chapter is is chapter 11. I, I'm really glad that you said what you said in the last chapter, uh, because in chapter 11, Bob Larson says that if you don't take the time to learn about this music and get the terminology and the concepts right, uh, then you're not going to be able to have your a conversation with your children about why it's bad and why you don't want them to be listening to it, which makes sense. Like that's a that makes perfect sense to me. Like I remember when I was a kid, the thing that like my parents, they weren't so limiting on what music I could listen to, but they were very strict about what video games they wanted me playing. So like they would, they wouldn't want me playing like call of duty or something like that. They were more like, if I was playing like racing games, that was fine. But if I was playing like call of duty or something like really violent, then they would get really like horrified by it when they were like trying to talk about it with me they would just say the wrong things or they would say this is bad because xyz thing but then the terminology that they would use or the the, the way that they were talking about it would just be wrong and it wouldn't make any sense and would just be like you're living in a different reality so i think it is smart that he makes that he makes that point and this is the section where he says that he disagrees with jack chick in saying that the music with a specific rhythm doesn't make the music bad, he makes it clear here that his issue is not with the music itself or the form of the music itself, but the subject matter and the culture that surrounds it. Yeah, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but when he's talking about getting your terminology right, he says, if you call Elton John hard rock, your kid's going to blow you off because you don't know what you're talking about. And uh, that's another point for Bob Larson here. He's right. He does he spe he doesn't specify that he disagrees with Jack Chick or does he? No, he doesn't. But Jack, that's okay. the the thing that Jack Chick said about how he had the comic where he had um 
the yeah. missionary and the beat on the two and four is like we summon the demons with this music and the chieftain in Africa is hella racist comic. But- I know. I hate. I hate that one. Mm, hate that one. Yeah. Um. Larson's different take on beat is that the syncopated two and four beat isn't necessarily evil, but it has a sexual effect on people. And it is kind of a sliding scale sort of a problem. If it if the beat is not the predominant aspect of the music, then it's less of a problem. And if the beat is the main thing about the music, it's more of a problem. Uh, he does make an absolutely wild claim here. This is a direct quote. I have known of hard rock drummers who have admitted to having self-induced orgasms after hours of incessant drumming. Obviously, it wasn't the drumstick that they were playing with. Who? What drummer? <laughs> what drummer said that? I don't know. I don't, I mean, I I don't think so. Drummers, plural. If he had said a hard rock drummer, I might have believed him. I have known hard rock drummers. Who's who? Who said this? Was he talking to Keith Moon? He was talking to John Bonham. He was talking to uh, I, I don't know. Because like oh. Tommy Lee would probably say that. Yeah, in an to, interview. Yeah, like that sounds like the kind of thing that Tommy Lee would just say because he's Tommy Lee. But I drummers uh i don't buy that yeah i don't i've ne- i've known quite a few drummers and i've never known a drummer to say that but um hey it's paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing i love that luxury quality within reach go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com style Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I do think on one hand that Bob Larson is more fair than a lot of fundamentalists in this chapter. But on the other hand, like every genre and every era of of music and every kind of music has songs that are about sex. Like Fundies love Mozart, but Mozart for sure has songs about eating ass. I did find another quote that makes uh, rock music sound incredibly cool from Bob Larson here. You don't listen to hard rock. It baptizes you with a liturgy of sex, drugs, perversion, and the occult. Hell yeah, brother. 
he's really he, really he missed his career as a music writer yeah i mean he could have written for for rolling stone or, or spin or um yeah he could have just written Parader all those articles or, about yeah. that he's badly referencing yeah there's a section later where he could have written hammer of the gods it would have been just as made up if bob larson read it wrote it um no, but it, in chapter 12, he basically says, if you have some standards for your kids, you have to do the same for yourself, especially with regards to the TV you watch. Which... Yeah, he wants parents not to be hypocrites. That I, I get that. Like, if you're watching worldly TV shows, your kid is not going to listen when you tell them not to listen to worldly music. Um, I do think the shows that he lists in the 1982 printing are kind of fun. So this is what he defines as worldly TV that is going to make your kids want to listen to rock music. Uh, the Edge of Night, Charlie's Angels, Hawaii Five O, Kojak, The Young and the Restless, and Days of Our Lives. I've never seen any of these shows. I have seen some Days of Our Lives. Is it good? No. <laughs> it's fun. He also takes aim at crime procedurals. Larson claimed that he overheard neighborhood kids playing out crime storylines. Like, this time you be the murderer and I'll be the detective. And he blames this on TV. He's like, oh no, children want to be murderers now. This is horrible. I wonder how he feels about true crime podcasts. He, he's probably said something about it. He just emails me so much that I can't <laughs> keep track of everything he has to say. Are you still getting the Bob Larson promotional emails? I think they're going to my spam folder by now. Yeah, see, I we we um when we did our... <laughs> our episode on Bob Larson, we signed up to find out how many demons are in us. But to do that, we had to give him our email address. And um, yeah, he emails people like every day once he has your email address. It's all like his, his newsletter and his new videos and this, that and the other. So he's, he's shocked that small children are playing out. I'm the murderer and you're the detective kind of storylines when they're playing together in the neighborhood. I'm, I am sure that as a little kid, he was pretending to be an army guy shooting people in a war or pretending to be the hero in a, a Western movie shooting up the bad guys. Um, I think this is a, a pretty silly thing to be shocked about without any context. This is very much like it, it seems very chain email -y. Um, he So speaking of chain emails, he claims without source that the average high school graduate has spent 14,000 hours watching TV and only 10,000 hours in school. So I did some napkin math on this. 14,000 hours divided by 18 years is 17, 778 hours of TV per year. 778 divided by 365 is 2.13 hours of TV a day. So that sounds pretty believable, two hours of TV a day. However, I also looked into the minimum number of school days in a year and the hours per day. So 180 school days in a school year is several states minimum that children must spend in class. And I found a table of the average hours spent in classroom instruction by state. 6.5 is a good low average. A lot of states beat that considerably. So if we do 180 school days in a school year times 6.5 hours in a school day, that's 1170 hours per year. And if a kid is only in school for 12 grades, not counting kindergarten, that's 14,040 hours in school by age 18. So don't know what where he is coming up with only 10,000 hours in school. Sadie, once again, you have done math on our podcast. Complicated math. <laughs> 
Um, and I appreciate that's not complicated it. math. That's multiplication. <laughs> and yeah. I used a calculator. I don't know. Maybe he was thinking about like these homeschool kids using uh, ACE or Rebecca or wisdom booklets that take considerably less time to do than actually going to school and having a real teacher teach you. Maybe you know. he just made up a statistic. Yeah, it's true. Or maybe he Which got it wrong. from like a chain letter. But yeah. chapter 13, um, he says basically that you have to try to understand your kid's music before you condemn it, which makes sense. Uh, it's kind of what he was saying earlier. It's interesting, though. Um, and there's a I mean, you have a quote that you want to read, and then I'm going to read a, a, a section of the book that I want to read. I have a wild claim alert for this chapter. <laughs> so Larson claims that at rock music concerts, quote, the air is so saturated with euphoric odors that one deep breath is sometimes enough to get high. If you go to like reggae concerts, if you go to like Grateful Dead concerts, that's definitely true. Yeah, I never got the privilege of going to a Grateful Dead concert. I did see a Slayer at the Gorge Amphitheater. Hell yeah. In like 2018. Um, yeah, I'm not going to tell you that I've, you know, never gotten a little contact high at a, a concert, but I think he's over dramatizing this a little bit, unless the eighties were a drastically different time. Also, the weed was way weaker in the eighties. It's way stronger now. Like how messed up are you getting from one deep breath at a concert in the eighties? Please answer this in the Facebook group. Yeah. I mean, it's more likely that you'd get, uh, just like emphysema from all the secondhand smoke that you'd be inhaling. Yeah, with all the people that were probably smoking in any given venue. Oh, it sounds awful. It sounds truly horrendous. So you wanted to read us a story from this chapter that Larson tells. Bob Larson goes into a bit of a sermon illustration here in which he describes a, a letter that he got from a parent. And I'm going to read, this is from his book. He says, uh, this, this is the letter that he got from the parent. He says, the, the letter says, I asked him, who's my son, to go through each album with me and tell me something about each group. At first, he was reluctant. I guess he thought I only wanted to condemn. But after a while, he opened up and showed me the lyric sheets. Reading those words was quite a jolt. She went on. I did my best not to really not to react self-righteously and instead put the burden back on him. I asked questions like, do you really think it's wise to fill your mind with that outlook on life? And does this image that group presents reflect values that are pleasing to God? Instead of and then so Bob Larson goes on to say instead of condemning her son's musical tastes, this mother tried to understand his world without being judgmental. She had very she had every reason for concern about the spiritual consequences of his music, but she honestly admitted that her ignorance and oversight had allowed him to purchase these albums in the first place. Finally, she continued, I asked him to play some of the albums for me. I told him not to spare me and pick the worst record he had. He chose Motley Crue. By the time they got through describing quickie sex on an elevator, I thought I'd literally be sick. By the look on my son's face, he wasn't so sure he liked the words either. The turning point came, she concluded, when I confessed my failings as a parent. Jesus. He had never heard this kind of admission from me before. 
I left his room knowing for the first time I understood a little about the influences in my son's life. He didn't get rid of those records on the spot. That might have been too much to expect. What's more important is that once again, I'm talking to my son. Hmm. And so Bob Larson goes on to say, parents, don't condemn your children's music. They need to know your objections aren't based on a vague dislike for modern forms of musical expression. If you follow the example of the mother just described, you will have taken a courageous step towards reaffirming Christian morality in your child's life. How do you feel about that? Well, the first thing I think I think I need to let you know is that this story is different in my copy of the book. Really? Yeah, he did a Paul Sand. No. Um, yes. So my copy reads, I'm just going to read the part that is that is different. Finally, she continued her story. I got him to actually play some of the albums for me. I told him not to spare me and pick the wildest record he had. He chose Kiss. Mm. In your version, he chose Motley Crue. Yeah. And in your version, it was the worst record he had. In my version, it's the wildest record he had. He chose Kiss. By the time they got through describing the trigger on their love gun and telling of the girl who wants them to inject her, I thought I'd literally be sick. By the look on my son's face, for once, he wasn't so sure he liked the words either. Wow. So he just like, he really just like, he, he claims that this is a real letter from a parent, but he has literally just changed it. What a fraud. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so I, and I think the kiss version, if this letter ever happened, if this is true, if this is possibly a real letter that he got from a parent, um, the kiss version strikes me as more true because I checked and the song Love Gun and the song Plaster Caster, which are the two that are referenced um, in this letter, are in fact on the same album. They're on the album Love Gun. So I think the Kiss version is real and the Motley Crue version is an update. Although I'm just not sure why he would lie about that when he was still going after Kiss in at the time that your version was published. Well, I think just Motley Crue was more contemporary. Um, more, more yeah, but popular. if it's supposed it's like, to be a real letter from a parent, why would you lie? I mean, it's like if you were going to uh, fear monger about rap music right now and, and somebody was like complaining about like a, a LL Cool J song. And I'm like, the f like it, it would it wouldn't hit the same as like saying, man, the new 21 Savage record. I can't believe he said this, you know. Yeah, but in the version of the book that you have, he is still going off after Kiss. He still sees Kiss as a contemporary threat. Why would he need to update it to Motley Crue unless he was going for the shock factor of, quote, quickie sex on an elevator? I think maybe because at the point when this book came out, Kiss singing about love guns and stuff like that was maybe a little bit, oh, that's been done. That's been done a while yeah. ago. Now we're on to Motley Crue and Motley Crue's work. Like if you, if if you are listening to your kids' music and the most explicit, wildest stuff they have is Kiss, that's not really that. In 1987, that's not really that crazy. Can you imagine having this conversation though? Can you imagine? Um. Wow. I I think that making your kid listen to Motley Crue with you and then having a casual parental parental chat about the lyrics does seem like a pretty effective way to ruin Motley Crue for a kid. Uh, yeah. But this entire book is reminding me of a much nicer version of the mom from the movie Detroit Rock City. It's like, or like the parents from uh, 
um um almost famous the mom from almost famous i don't know almost famous oh that's a good one you should watch that one it's pretty good but like bob larson's reaction to everything in this book is like the parent character in every rebellious themed music video from the 1980s but what i what i do have to say though is that saying you can't listen to rock music or you can't listen to that because i don't like the way that it sounds is very much different from going into your kid's room and saying show me this thing that you like so that i can listen to it for myself and understand it for myself so that i can actually make a judgment about it rather than just saying this thing is bad because mm-hmm. i my friend told me so or the pastor told me so or this person told me so or that person told me so yeah and as much as i'm clowning on bob larson for making a hero out of this mom who is um just clutching her pearls over love gun and plaster caster um and then lied about it for inexplicable reasons experiencing material that you are feeling questionable questionable about with your kids is not a bad strategy um that can be awkward like the time i watched the movie jfk with my dad (laughs) (laughs) but it's um Awkwardness is not necessarily a bad thing when you are trying to be an open and honest parent to your kids. Just all the, everything that I'm reading as I, you know, I'm seeing this teenage phase, it's a good ways down the road yet, but I'm on the road and there is no getting off of this road. So I know that I'm going to be there one day and I'm trying to prep for that time. And just everything that I'm reading is that that's the best possible way to handle your kids coming into adulthood and wanting to engage with music that is explicit or has themes that you are less than comfortable with as a parent or TV shows that have themes that you are less than comfortable with as a parent. The the, the best thing you can do is kind of deal with the awkward, any awkwardness that may be there and have a dialogue with a kid. I do remember when I was in like, probably like ninth or 10th grade, and uh, I was listening to Lil Wayne in my room and my mom was like, the lyrics to this song are disgusting. And I'm like, I mean, I can't argue with you, but. <laughs> yeah. And, and Bob Larson's point, which is actually very correct, is having that talk with your kid is possibly not going to make them get rid of the music that you don't like, but maybe it's going to make them think twice about it. And maybe your kid will choose to choose to keep some and get rid of some of their own accord. And that's not bad parenting advice. The thing that I think of also, though, and this book is about rock music because he, he doesn't talk about hip hop music at all or rap music at all in this book because it wasn't as much of a pressing issue to his audience at the time. I can only imagine that if this book had come out 10 years later, then there would have been a lot in it about rap music. But I do find that like a lot of times, like white suburban parents listening to like can, or at least from my generation, the suburban parents of my generation would be like, I don't want my kids listening to rap music because it's demeaning to women and degrading to women and this and that and the other thing. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, well, maybe there's a bit of racism in that as well, because rock music is also demeaning and degrading to women. Yeah. <laughs> but, like... I mean, what what are we doing here? I don't know. I think that's that's my whole point about about you know maybe there's a better way than completely cutting off forms of media for your kid or just letting them run wild through the world of digital and physical media that there is. 
because so much of music has themes that we would now look at and say, oh, that's possibly misogynist. I think that maybe the way to go is to sit with your kid and read the lyrics and talk about why you find it troubling. If your kid continues to listen to that music, they're better off listening to it with the context of the conversation you had than with no context at all. Or like go on genius.com. You know, mm -hmm. if you if you want to like look up the lyrics to a song on genius.com or something, then you can look up the lyrics and it will have like annotated. It's especially useful for rap music if there's terminology that you don't know or if there's a metaphor that you don't know, they'll like say, This is the simile and this is the metaphor from this song. That's like the extended metaphor in this song when he's talking about this. He means this. Chapter 14 is basically the same as chapter 12, except he's talking about music instead of TV, saying you need to listen, you can't be telling your kid you can't listen to this music when you're you're listening to music that also has objectionable subject matter which makes sense but except for that he's like he has some smoke for dolly parton in this chapter and he's talking about how country music is just as sinful and bad as rock music yeah his biggest issue with country music is the number of songs about cheating if you can't write songs about cheating like what are you doing country music you can't write songs about cheating you can't write songs about drinking what like what can you write songs about if you're there's a like five singer? country songs left <laughs> yeah i mean i guess you can write songs about like having a big pickup truck i don't know um, yeah but according to bob larson anything that mentions engine or motor or machine is a sexual in innuendo every single time so clearly. yeah now you're gonna Chap have to have a euphemism for your euphemism <laughs> yeah Chapters 16 and 17 are, have you tried Christian rock instead? Uh, yeah. Which is, mm. it, and it, it, it very much reads it. You know the meme where it's like, dude, just please try it, bro. I'm begging you, please. You know that meme? Yeah. It, it very much reads like that. And it reminds me of like, there was an era, I guess you were still in the cult at this time. So you wouldn't have been as exposed to, or you might've been exposed to this. But when I was like 16, 17, 18, 19, metalcore was really popular. Do you remember this? No. Uh, no, yeah, you wouldn't have cult. But also, like, every popular metalcore band was Christian. I mean, I've heard about this. I just didn't live it. Yeah, there was this phase in, from, like, I want to say, like, 2009 to, like, 2012 or something when there were a bunch of really popular metalcore bands that were Christian metalcore bands. And I had friends that were begging me to get into it and they were like dude they're a good band they just they they don't even have that many christian songs they're just a really good metalcore band that happens to be christian they're not like a christian band they're just like a band and they're christian you wouldn't even know that they're christian they're just like a really good band <laughs> come on dude like please just like come on dude you just just try i promise you like it i also think that if you like metalcore then you have religious trauma <laughs> it's just a Fair fact enough. if I don't know. Um, my anti-emo, anti-pop punk, anti-metalcore stance is going to piss off like half of our audience. So care, Larson, right? when let's get into what he says about Christian rock. He has to apologize for his initial distrust of any Christian rock music. So apparently like in the 70s, he was really going around against it. And then he changed his mind. His take is, uh, at first I thought they were just imitating the world and catering to the kids' worldly desires. But as Christian rock bands have matured, they've made better lyrics. So I'm going to say the beat is okay now. 
because their lyrics are deeper and more spiritual than they used to be. He does, however, have a lot of cautions about Christian rock. He comes off very wishy-washy in this chapter. So his overall, like, his take ends up being, if the lyrics are spiritually instructive enough and the beat isn't too prevalent, then it's still not the best, but it's better than the kids listening to Kiss and teenagers and rock music are just kind of made for each other and there's no way that you're going to wean a kid off of actual rock music without giving him Christian rock. So it's a step in the right direction and I'm going to say it's okay. He, it's very wishy-washy, but that's his that's his take. I do think that it's very difficult to get a kid off of like regular rock music and get them onto Christian rock music because especially during this era like maybe now it might be easier. like now i don't think it is because there is such a selection of christian bands the other thing i'm thinking about here is that rock and roll music now is very is not as envelope pushing and not as openly rebellious as it was 35 40 years ago when this book came out and so having the appeal of being the thing that is sticking it to the man isn't really a thing that rock music has anymore going for it which is kind of a bummer to say so like telling your kid okay you can't listen to uh metallica and instead you're gonna listen to striper like that's not gonna work like striper is a great band they're really talented musicians and i listened to an album of striper and i didn't think it was horrible but one of the things about Metallica is that they are, especially back in the eighties, is that they were a band that was just like you to the system and you to all of the oppression. And when Christianity essentially is the man as it is now and as it was in the 1980s, it's really hard to sell people on being like, actually, we're the dominant force, but we're still the underdog. It's kind of yeah. hard to sell people on that. It's kind of hard to sell people like, oh, you can rebel, but rebel for the system. We're also talking about a time when digital music was not a thing. So if you were trying to get your kid off of one type of music and onto another type of music, the primary thing that you're doing is getting rid of records. Or I guess by the time your version came out, maybe maybe cassette tapes cassettes cds cds were around by them but they like i don't know how common they were i mean it wasn't something a kid would have in their car no. i don't think in 1986 87 but you're you're telling this teenager get rid of this physical media that you've collected and go buy other things from the same store or from a different store and that i feel like is a bigger ask because now if there was a kid who decided they wanted to quit listening to music with themes that they found objectionable due to their faith and wanted to listen to different music, it would be a little simpler. It's simpler to go on Spotify and look up a new artist. And also, there is such a buffet of Christian music that's available in a kid's hand on their smartphone. So I think it's a bigger ask back then. I was I was going to say, you know, if, if a kid decided that they didn't want to listen to Casey Musgraves anymore because she's not Christian enough for them, there are dozens of similar sounding artists that are Christian artists on Spotify. And there are also Christian artists that have a variety of viewpoints about how they like, I mean, you could do you could listen to like the Hillsong stuff and just like 
you know, that, that like worship music, but there are also Christian artists out there who are like making music that's genuinely thought provoking. Yes. Similar, similar, hold on, similar. If you want to listen to the absolute best Christian music coming out right now, similar is a queer artist who does um, like one of the songs that they wrote is called thank God I'm gay, um, which is probably my favorite one. <laughs> Just look them up. They are amazing. Stream their single faith because they're trying to get onto Christian charts when they're getting blocked out of Christian charts by the people who run Christian charts. Well, that's genuinely like simultaneously Christian and also sticking it to the man. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Also, the song is called Thank God for That. The lyrics are the Thank God I'm Gay. But yeah. Thank God for That is the title of the one I like. Chapter 19 of the book. So after you finish reading the first 18 chapters of this book, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to hand chapter 19 of this book to your kids so that they can read it. It's supposed to give them, I guess, an epiphany. Okay, what's he got to say to the kids? <laughs> I want to read an excerpt from it. He says, this is Bob Larson talking to the kids of whoever's parents read this book. Quote, your generation is the most materialistic in history. Former luxuries are now commonplace. Our affluent philosophy has supported the idea that life's necessities are a right. Food and shelter are bare minimums. While former generations survived with few pleasures, people today worry about, scare quotes, quality of life, meaning a life with as many material possessions as possible. Average young people expect easy access to life's necessities, the roof over their heads, the food in their stomachs, and the clothes on their backs are given only cursory thought. The toil their parents endure to make life easy is rarely acknowledged. Why are frequent expressions of gratitude necessary? After all, that's what parents are for. Oof. Dude, man. That's wild to read. Like he's like he he spends an entire book talking about how it's really important for parents to try to understand their children, and then he launches into this. This hilarious, honestly. It's it's so funny. But what I find most funny about it is that the teenagers in the seventies and the eighties, when Bob Larson came out with this book, are like baby boomers and like Gen Xers. And Bob Larson is out here saying, this generation is so selfish. This generation is so entitled. These kids have no respect. Their culture is destroying the natural order of things. Blah, 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 blah. And it reminds me that this stuff just never changes, you know, like, because this is like, this is the same stuff I hear from people of my parents' generation, or they say about us and they say about the generation that are younger than us, like generation Z who are like teenagers now, but they don't just say that against like people in their teens and their twenties. They say about this people, like about people, my age and Sadie's age and older, like people who are full ass, full grown adults who are in their thirties and forties who have like whole ass spouses and kids. Yeah. <laughs> like this generation in their thirties is so entitled. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing, buddy? It's so like, ugh. You, well, you see the memes and it's like um, talking about specifically our generation, people who are right around 30. It's like, oh, we saw our country get attacked on TV when we were six, seven, eight years old. Uh, we saw one of the biggest recessions that ever happened happened when we were teenagers going like going into high school 2008. Um, and then now there's another one <laughs> when we are 
just of the age, like getting married, having kids, trying to buy houses. You know, our generation has has kind of been through a lot. But I like to temper that with realizing that like every generation has been through a lot. And I wish that people, I think it's appropriate for our generation to give credit to people who came before us who did go through difficult times. Like I saw 9-11 happen on TV when I was a little kid. And that definitely affected the rest of my life. But my dad saw the Kennedy assassination on TV when he was four years old. And that definitely impacted his life. So, and gosh, my mom was born in Montgomery, Alabama the summer after the huge, huge civil rights protests in Montgomery, Alabama. So I think it's appropriate for us to give credit to the people who came before us who went through difficult things, but I also wish that we would receive the same credit from those who went before us. Everyone thinks that they're going to live to see the end of the world, but hasn't happened yet. Um, yes, but my point exactly. That's it, I think that's a really good thing to keep in mind when we talk about intergenerational differences or conflicts. Yeah, I mean, and there's even, in fact, there's a rock song about that. Do you know uh, the song uh, uh, Surrender by Cheap Trick? No, I don't think I do. You know that song? Uh, Mommy's all right. Daddy's all right. They just oh, yeah. seem a little. Yeah, I mean, that's a song. What's that song about? That's a song about like, oh, my parents used to party. My parents, f like, what's <laughs> going on here? Like, that's what that song's about. And also, like, when Bob Larson is talking about, like, are these um, song lyrics in this song consistent with Christian values, bands like Black Sabbath? Well, you know what? I would challenge him to listen to a song like War Pigs by Black Sabbath. What's the first line of that song? The first line of that song is generals gathered in their masses, just like witches at Black Masses. Evil minds that plot destruction, sorcerers of death's construction. What's that a song about? That's not a song that's pro-Satan. That's a song that's saying the war profiteers and the generals and the military industrial complex are evil people. Like, yes. Is that in line with something that Jesus would say? Or would Jesus be out here being like, actually, we should be bombing Cambodia? <laughs> Sorry, that cracked me up. Yeah, <laughs> no, like, me. but he's basically like, your parents worked really hard to get you the things that you have and you owe it to them to be obedient, which is kind of because if you're not willing to accept your children for who they are, are, are and like whatever their interests may be, then maybe you shouldn't have kids to begin with, or at least within reason. If my kid got into Manosphere, Andrew Tate, I would clown them endlessly for it. <laughs> I, I yeah, really I would. mean, hopefully, hopefully you would do your best at five and six and seven years old to make sure that your kid's not into Manosphere or Andrew Tate at 11 or 12 or 13 years old. Well, you can try and you can do the best job that you can, but like your kid might still get sucked into something weird. Um, you just, you yeah, just you never cannot, know. They just might not. You can never prevent your kid from getting into something like that, but you can make it a lot less likely. I don't know. Chapter 20 is basically like obey your parents, but with Bible verses. If I were a kid in 1985 and I was caught listening to Dio and like Black Sabbath and Judas Priest and Slayer and Iron Maiden, and my parents gave me these two chapters to read, I don't know what I would do. But I, I do feel like reading these two chapters is like watching the beginning of Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny. I have a wild quote from this one. Go for it. Uh, rock music tells kids to, quote, get high. Forget the hassles. Parents don't understand. Move with the music. We're taking over someday. Kick out the jams. 
I find it offensive that you said kick out the jams without adding motherfucker onto the end of it. I don't know what <laughs> kick out the jams is. I've never heard. You don't of know this. that song? Oh, that's no. uh by MC Five. Okay. Also, it's like uh, widely touted as like the first punk song. Okay. I'll send it to you. It's I really just... good. Your husband will know all about it. I'm sure it's a good song. I'm sure Jonathan will tell me all about it over dinner. But I just think that having it come from Bob Larson is humorous. Kick out the jams. We gotta kick him out. Okay, think of Bob Larson's face in his fake priest collar, holding his like big crucifix thing, looking directly into the camera with his very intense glare that he does when he like looks directly into a camera, like furrows his brow kick out the jams like is that not funny to you oh that's hilarious to me i that's that's why i'm laughing i'm seeing his face but i can't imagine anybody being like kick out the jams without being like kick out the jams mother because like that's the beginning of the song bob larson tells a story that's like the most unrelatable story ever <laughs> in this chapter like he tells this story and i like i literally read this story and i'm like you bob larson go die um, and i'm sure you'll have that same reaction that i had uh but bob larson tells a story that he was buying a house in suburban denver and he low balls the out of the seller but the seller accepts his offer for some reason so number one already got points against him i'm like being able to buy a house <laughs> and and like and not offer 10 to fifty thousand dollars over asking to get it yeah and bob larson then says his parents tell him not to buy the house because they prayed about it and decided it was a bad idea yeah so then he doesn't buy the house somebody else buys the house for the same lowball offer that he made and nothing bad happens to that person but he doesn't buy it because he wants to honor his parents and their judgment. But it turned out all right for him because if he had bought this house, then he never would have had a conversation with a literal demon who yes. told him that like certain objects were hindrances and they're demonic and that like any religious item from any culture that isn't Christian is demonic and also heavy metal posters are demonic. Like he had a literal conversation with an actual demon who told him this right. and that wouldn't have happened if he were living in a different house. Yeah. So he had this, the house that they were living in was more in the city center and they were trying to buy this house that was more out of town relatable, but he, because his house was in the city center, people could come over and get exorcisms from him all the time. I don't fully understand why you couldn't drive a couple extra miles to get your free exorcism, but it's Bob Larson, so who knows? He had this guy over to his old house. He was doing an exorcism. He talked to a demon, and the demon found over $3,000 worth of different things that the Larsons had bought in their world travels. And who'd have thunk it? All of these souvenirs from other countries are demonic. Um, and Bob had thought he had done his due diligence by asking before buying a souvenir if it had any religious significance, but those sneaky, non-American, non-Christian brown people had snuck demons into all of this stuff that he had bought in like Indonesia and Thailand and Hawaii and not Hawaii, um, Indonesia, Thailand, and I'm trying to remember the other place he said he was. Anyway, so Bob and his wife burned all this stuff in the fireplace. And at one point, Bob and his wife thought they heard one of the items scream as they threw it into the fire, which is a normal Tuesday when you're Bob Larson. No, it just probably had some water inside of it. It was steam escaping. <laughs> 
probably. But because he listened to his parents, he got all this demonic stuff out of his house, and then God gave him a bigger, better house across the street from the house that he almost bought. Basically, if Bob, if Bob Larson had bought a house in Denver, he never would have written the book about how your Duran Duran poster is inviting evil spirits into your house. <laughs> Yeah, so honor your parents so that you can have a nice house without demons in it. Most, I mean, I prefer the house with demons in it. That would be interesting. I have some stuff I can give you when you get a house. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, most unrelatable story ever. If you're trying to win the young people over to your cause, especially in the year of 2023, don't talk to them about how you were like, I was going to low, I I got this low ball (laughs) offer on this house I tried to purchase in suburban Denver. It, and and I was going to do it, but I just decided not to because I didn't feel like it. That's like yeah. amount of like bitterness that all young people are going to be feeling after reading that story is just, um, it's, uh, the, the, the feelings that this makes me feel are not conducive to my spiritual well-being, Mr. Larson. No. It doesn't make you want to write heavy metal songs. Uh, it makes me want to write him and see if I can have some of his million dollars from his demon kicking out ministry. And I mean, that's the end of the book, really. Um, oh, there is at the end of the book, there is a glossary of rock performers. And this section is basically just like a who's who of like popular musicians, including everything bad that they've ever done. But this is a lot of fun because he includes everything that any of these bands ever did that was meant to be like shocking or crude in a pearl clutching sort of way. But it just makes them like super fucking cool sound at least do you want to read some of the glossary on patreon uh yeah so for patrons we're going to read some of this glossary and then we're going to come back with our final thoughts about this book i thought this book was worth reading and reviewing because it's such a complete list of all of the reasons that i heard that non-christian music was satanic and it also goes beyond like that the beat is bad and it it tells it talks about all of the reasons that this music attracted the ire of the satanic panic and the lifelong attention evidently of self-professed exorcism expert bob larson (laughs) what uh what did you think of this book any surprises anything of note i don't know it just seems to me that whenever Bob Larson had a point that I kind of agreed with, like his points about rock musicians abuse teenage girls or his criticism saying the subject matter isn't deep and isn't asking real questions and isn't talking about things that are really important. Those for once, I I would say that those aren't like universally true for a lot of music, but for some music, it definitely is true. But there are also issues that are not just true for music or for uh, a culture or for media or something. Those are also questions that you could ask about Christianity and Christian culture. Like you can say, why are all why is there no accountability for women and and young people? And, and young women especially being abused and groomed and molested in the church and there's no recourse. Or you could say, why is all of this doctrine stuff basically, uh, why are all of these Christian doctrines basically just don't ask questions and do what we say and there's no real depth to it other than the legalism? Like Those are legitimate questions, but these are questions that he's basically asking about rock music. But he's not willing to basically ask those questions to himself in the culture that he comes from. So that's definitely, I think, a perfect example of a double standard. Yeah, it's it's a lot of the 
like his criticism of Ted Nugent, for example, is totally valid criticism, but he he's not asking those same questions of himself and based on the way that he speaks to parents in this book, based on these sources that he chooses to cite and the things that he chooses to say without a source, I think this book comes off as a bit of a grift of parents are scared of this thing, so I'm going to write a book with all of this shocking and scary information about this thing because people are going to buy this book. For me, I when I look at like his criticisms of Ted Nugent and his criticisms of other rock musicians who um, abuse teenage girls, who abuse underage girls, is that his criticism is more... It isn't so much these people are bad for doing this thing and they need to be held accountable for it. His criticism is, well, they should have known better than to get involved with rock music. And that's the tack that he takes. It's very like he'll say this is a bad thing that happens, but rather than even putting blame on the rock musicians, he'll put blame on the the people who did it or, or people who who were were victims and he'll put blame on like the parents and be like if you let your kids get into rock music this is what's going to happen to them and i think that's extremely predatory in my opinion it is and parent shaming is powerful and is still powerful and still gets people's attention on social media it's yeah. it's a uh, repeated refrain <laughs> It's very effective. You know, that's why we have anti-vaxxers. That's why we have the whole part of why what they're using to try and, and go after transgender people right now. And it's disgusting and it's terrible. Yeah. So thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I think that's about it for all that we wanted to say today. Um, there's going to be a very extended version of this episode on Patreon where we go into some sections of the book, like the glossary of rock musicians that we didn't have time to talk about on the regular streaming cut of the episode, but that is up on our Patreon. It's very extended. Uh, there's, I think, 15, 20 minutes, something on there. There's about 15, 20 minutes in the middle. There's the, the, Patreon version is much longer than the regular version is all I'm trying to say. Next week, we are talking about Alberto Rivera. So if you listen to our Jack Chick episode from last week, you'll remember that we talked about this comic book, Alberto, which is a, a comic book detailing the fake life of Alberto Rivera, who claimed to be a Jesuit priest, but wasn't really we're reading that and we're going into it and we're going to dissect that. That'll be a lot of fun. Um, maybe expect it to be a little bit like our John Todd episode or our Mike Warnke episode. And yeah, Sadie, anything else you want to say before we finish? No. Okay. Well, if you like our show, then you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast, on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod, on TikTok. I think it's also Leaving Eden Podcast. Join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. Check out our merch. Our Summer of Satan merch is out now. You can get it, get a tote bag, get a shirt, get a mouse pad if you want, get some stickers. A lot of fun. Um, and. You can follow me on social media on Instagram at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Sadie, your socials? You can, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell yes Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys have...
Sun.